0: I also wanted to introduce Mike today, one of the pastors here who's going to be speaking and has a great talk lined up, so thank you. Thank you. Right. right, all right. I'm going to go ahead and echo what Peter said just about the meeting next week and uh, some of you are good about getting on live stream, but that portion of the service, as far as I understand, won't be on live stream. So as important of a meeting as it is, and as, as few meetings as we have as a group here, uh, just make every effort to be here next Sunday, uh, that meeting will follow worship. So researchers agree across the board that a fundamental difference between humans and animals is the ability to be self-aware. It's not our strength as much as you might think it is, it's not our superior intellect which is becoming increasingly suspect if you spend any amount of time on twitter or x or facebook these days we are set apart because of our ability to talk to ourselves and ask life's most fundamental questions like who am i that is the perennial question isn't it if you were to visit Apollo's temple at Delphi in Greece, you would find inscribed in the forecourt of the temple a mosaic plaque that reads, Know thyself, a saying attributed to Socrates. And that ancient mantra was in fact a common refrain among many of the philosophical giants from Socrates to Plato to Aristotle, who said, Knowing yourself is the beginning of wisdom. And we can't leave out Shakespeare's timeless charge. This above all to thine own self be true. But surely Bill knew that I must first know who I am in order to live an authentic life. Knowing thyself comes before being true to it. And authenticity is getting a lot of airtime these days. We hear it a lot, don't we? You do you. Just be yourself. Come on, be real. Self-discovery and self-help is a multi-billion dollar industry. Our market capitalist economic system understands that there is wealth to be had in people who just don't have a clue who they are and are trying to find out. The Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung says, The world will ask you who you are, and if you don't know, The world will tell you. Just a few months back, I had an exchange with a stranger uh, who quickly into the conversation asked this question. So what's your sign? (laughs) And I'll admit that the question immediately threw me off for a minute and probably saw the confusion on my face uh, and quickly clarified your zodiac sign. But that didn't ease my puzzled look in this little exchange because then I wondered how... The date and time of my birth says anything about the person that I am or that I've become. I didn't know my sign and I don't know much about astrology, but maybe it's true that our identity is somehow written in the stars. Maybe we should all be spending more time staring through telescopes than listening to Oprah. Turns out I'm a Pisces, thank you very much. And I'm sure my reaction was less than satisfying with this little discovery that he helped me make. Oh, cool, I replied. I'll I'll look into that. It sure didn't signal to me any end to the quest of knowing my true self, even if it was interesting to find out. And if you look on horoscope websites, they are all too eager to tell you what Pisces are into these days Everything from entertainment, to food, to dating, to finances, and even what my assigned planet is. I always thought of myself as a cool Neptune kind of (laughs) guy. Well, if the stars aren't helping you discover your true self, then what will? Maybe you've turned to something more scientific. I can remember the anxiety I felt when a past employer asked me to submit my Myers-Briggs personality assessment as part of the initial process in a job search. You might know about this one. It's a psychological test that sifts people into a four-by-four grid of different personality types, 16 in all. And when I was asked to complete the questionnaire as part of the process, I initially thought it was an odd way to get to know someone, but I played along. And there I was navigating the soul-searching labyrinth that is Myers-Briggs, All the while knowing that whichever four letters I would be assigned in the end could spell the fate of my chances. And they tell you it's a test with no right or wrong answers. What they don't tell you is that it doesn't make you feel any better about answering the questions. Do you more often, A, let your head or heart rule your head, or B, let your head rule your heart? Well, it depends. Sometimes it's A, sometimes it's B, it's, it's contextual. Why isn't there a C in these questions? When being asked to do a job, would you rather A, get the job done in time, or B, make sure that the job is done right? Well, how about both? Both sound pretty good to me. And in that test, my inner dialogue was having this identity crisis, but I finished the test. And in the fashion of a magical wizard-like sorting hat, the final results came in and showed that I belonged to house INFJ. Those were my people. (laughs) Any of those out there? (laughs) Lucius, I see that hand. (laughs) Well, it turned out to be a good thing for me. The boss doing the hiring immediately explained that she was an ENTJ, and then if my four letters included anything of a P, that it would have killed the opportunity from the start. <laughs> I believe her exact words were, that would have put the kibosh on partnership. I thought to myself, well, on any other given day, I might be a little bit of a P. I, I mean, who really knows, right? These things are so subjective. And knowing yourself is hard work. Have you been there? Life is racing by at breakneck speed and you're constantly on the move, spinning all the plates, treading water barely as you burn the candle at both ends. And you stop just long enough to ask, who am I? After horoscopes and personality tests and even social media has had its say, do you ever stop and just look in the mirror and think, who am I anymore? Who am I really Am I just some cog in a machine, or am I a pawn in a meaningless game? Am I just the sum of all the Instagram posts that I make? Or the degrees on my wall? What is authentically me? The Gospel of Luke has something to say about that. It is with these questions in mind that I want us to turn to a passage of Scripture this morning in Luke chapter 4. And beginning with the first verse, I want us to look over these words together. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tested by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said said to him, If you are the Son of God... Command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours But Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil led him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. But when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him into an opportune time. May God add understanding to the reading of this word this morning. Jesus had been fasting for the entire 40 days when he was in the wilderness. So without any food, by the end of it, you can imagine he's absolutely famished. And it conjures up for me memories of a trip I once took with my brothers and some friends. We hiked into the mountains of Virginia, Virginia with lofty intentions of fasting during that long weekend so that we could have this mystical, spiritual experience with nature. Look, I, I grew up in a Christian conservative home. These are the things that we did as teenagers, But we barely made it to the second day before starvation took over and it sent us scrambling to find the nearest grocery store. It was not a good experience. We were quickly reminded of this power of hunger and the ways that it can make you do some uncharacteristic things. And of course, it's at Jesus' weakest moment that the devil enters this picture after the 40 days to tempt Jesus with food and seizing an opportunity, he, he leans in to provoke him, whispering, if you really are who you think you are, you would have the power to turn this stone to bread. And Jesus refuses it. It isn't only food, devil, that enables a person to be truly alive. It isn't just the body that we must tend to, there is also the soul. You can imagine the devil, the tempter, cradling that rock like a hot loaf of bread fresh out of the oven, wafting its fumes towards Jesus' direction to help him envision this flaky, chewy end to his starvation. But Jesus knew that his position and his power would be cheapened to wield it in this way. Tempting, but no, he says. Temptations offer a way out, but they do come with a cost. But was it this devil's food, the only thing that was tempting Jesus in the wilderness? The gospel writer doesn't think so. You see, Luke includes for us a decoding device right there in those opening words to this chapter to help us better understand what the author is trying to say. We read, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, did what? He returned from the Jordan. And Luke inserts this to link the wilderness passage to what came just before. So it bids us to, to look at that final portion of Luke chapter 3 and I want to read it beginning in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven opened up and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is of course is an account of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. And Luke immediately follows this up by inserting the results of Jesus' Ancestry.com report, which includes that he was the son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, and son of God. So you have these two sections, this baptism and this genealogy to make the point clear that Jesus has royalty in his blood. He is the Son of God, divinity through and through, the Beloved of God, so that before he enters the wilderness, he receives his ID card. I don't know if you've heard this before, but it's been said that doorways are where the most important things are told. It's kind of like when patients talk to their therapist for an hour, hardly saying anything, and just as they're leaving, they turn at the door and they say, and oh, by the way, and in one sentence reveal everything they've been avoiding for 60 minutes. Something its in those threshold moments, those beginnings and those endings where the most important things are said. And I think Jesus here is having an oh, by the way moment. He is crossing the threshold to begin his public ministry. He's standing at this dusty doorway with his hands fiddling on the doorknob. The baptismal waters were hardly dried on his linen tunic. His new name, beloved, still echoing in his ears. Because there's something here we are being told to ask to, to pay special attention to. Something to do with fundamental things who we are. You see, the devil isn't interested in trying to see if Jesus will misuse his power. The devil is wanting to stir up doubt, and not the good kind either. This is what the devil does. He wants to question Jesus so that Jesus questions himself. If you are the son of God, then command this stone to turn to bread. If you will worship me, that is if you will trade your ID card for the one that I have for you, then all of the kingdoms of the world will be yours. If you really are the Son of God, then throw yourself down from this ledge and the angels will protect you. The word devil in the Greek is diabolos. And that word shares a root with the verb diaboline, which means to split. The devil wants to divide to drive a wedge between, to create division, not just between us and others, but within ourselves. That word literally means to set at variance. It pictures for us a divergence, like projectiles set on different trajectories. And I can understand why then David, in his prayer in the Psalms, said, Lord, give me an undivided heart. This wasn't just a plea for attentiveness, but to return to wholeness. Each and every person is endowed with a wholeness that is often covered over by the fiction of lack. And that lack creates fear. And that fear, the need for external validations and false comforts. And while there is a wholeness in knowing thy true self, there is a violence that happens when it is left unexamined and undiscovered. This week, we have seen that violence on full display in Gaza. The state of Israel has been oppressing the people of Gaza and the West Bank for decades, trading peace for subjugation. And having reached a boiling point, Hamas has countered by terrorizing and killing Israeli people. Israel has lately matched their violence by dropping bombs and killing innocent women and children. It has been a devastating cycle and exchange for all of us to watch and infinitely more to live through, I'm sure. From my vantage, there are no winners, but just loss after devastating loss. Both sides have traded peace and reconciliation for violence and retaliation. And while I don't subscribe to the personified, caricatured devil of Dante's Inferno, we have witnessed here an evil that has won through dividing, nation against nation, person against person, and the inner division that comes when we follow a narrative of lack. American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr once said, Ultimately, evil is done not so much by evil people, but by good people who do not know themselves and who do not probe deeply. I learned a startling statistic this week. It suggested that inner dialogue is a frequent occurrence for only about 30 to 50% of people. If true, this could reveal that nearly half of the population hardly asks questions of self-awareness and self-discovery, but merely defaults to being told their identity and their worth by outer sources. From their perceived enemies, from those that bully them, from the systems of our world, and what is there to tell them a different reality? Jesus says, Do not go into the wilderness without first hearing your name, because life is and will be a wilderness experience at times for all of us. It's interesting that the text says that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And that says to me that this was necessary, it was inevitable, divinely appointed, if you will. Even for Jesus, he heard clearly the pronouncement of his belovedness. knew his divine legacy in the way that you understand your own genealogy, but he needed the wilderness experience so that Jesus could internalize it at the core of his being and be able to recall it in the moments of intense weakness. As I wrap up, I wonder in what ways we have let outer sources tell us our name and identity. Have we allowed systems of this world which merely offer promises to satisfy the body, speak to soul matters. The voice of opposition, that, that diabolic voice of division wants to keep those two things separated, body and soul. As long as we forget to tend to the soul, we will operate out of a fiction of lack instead of the reality of abundance. In the silver chair, which is the fourth installment of C.S. Lewis's allegory, The Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis writes of a green witch whose domain lies across the sunless sea. It is there where for 10 years a young man has remained under her her control and every night is given only one hour of sanity. But during that hour, he has to be tied to a silver chair until he is back under the witch's control. For it's said that if he's released, he will turn into a deadly green serpent and kill everyone in sight. And so the three travelers who arrive at the city ruled by this green witch help the young man ultimately escape this enchanted captivity and ultimately destroy the silver chair along with those lies. His identity is immediately made known to the three that he is indeed the vanished Prince Rilian kept underground by the green witch in her plot to conquer Narnia. And so the green witch arrives and what does she do? She tries to put them under a spell so that they would forget who they are. She takes this green powder tosses it in the fire and this resulting smoke was sweet and drowsy and made it hard to think, one of them said. This spell almost works on the travelers and the prince. Lewis writes, the more enchanted you get, the more certain you feel that you are not enchanted at all. Friends, we live in enchanting times. There are those who wish to help us forget who we we are, so they can tell us. And none of us are immune to the systems which we are exposed to every day, but we do choose which voices validate who we are. That choice belongs to us. I'll be the first to say this morning, I don't know who you are, but I do know that it starts with full acceptance and unconditional love. Carl Jung, whose theory of psychological types inspired Catherine Briggs and her daughter, Isabel Briggs Myers, to develop that personality test, spoke about Christ as an archetype. That means that Jesus, so filled with the Christ spirit, models for us what is true of all humanity. So that we too can claim that baptismal blessing and identity. And I want you to rehearse it as often as you need to be reminded, inserting your name in the blank. You are blank, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. You are Mike, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. I wanna invite Taylor to come back up as we'll respond and worship in just a moment. But I wanna close with these words, this litany by the writer and minister Jan Richardson titled, Beloved is Where We Begin. If you would enter into the wilderness, do not begin without a blessing. Do not leave without hearing who you are, beloved named by the one who has traveled this path before you. Do not go without letting it echo in your ears. And if you find it is hard, to let it into your heart. Do not despair. That is what this journey is for. I cannot promise this blessing will free you from danger, from fear, from hunger or thirst, from the scorching of the sun or the fall of the night. But I can tell you that on this path, there will be help. I can tell you that on this way there will be rest. And I can tell you that you will know the strange graces that come to our aid only on a road such as this, that fly to meet us bearing comfort and strength, that come alongside us for no other cause than to lean themselves toward our ear and with their curious insistence whisper our name, Beloved, Beloved, Beloved. Amen.